Guard your heart above all else. You see, now David forgot to guard his heart. And David started relying on his eyes, ultimately. And eventually, his sin, uh, his sin with Bathsheba, as we talked a little bit about last week, uh, his sin ended up dividing the kingdom because of its consequences. And the kingdom ended up becoming in two. And you can see from this map here that there are two different... uh, sections. Uh, I'll try to get out of the way. Up at the top of Israel as a whole nation actually became the kingdom of Israel in the north and then the kingdom of Judah in the south. That's what happened when we talk about a divided kingdom years. Uh, The nation was divided in two. Now all the kings of the north in Israel uh, we consider ungodly or as in little kid terms we say bad. Uh, And all of the kings of Judah, well that was about a half and half. That was a mixed bag of some godly, some not godly, some good, some not so good. Uh, But um, it wasn't a very good scene, Uh, and this was all a direct result of the leadership not following God. And so our central figure today uh, will appear on the scene about a hundred years after King David. Um, He's one of the most well-known prophets. Uh, His events are going to span the uh, four different kings uh, and what he does uh, in his ministry. Uh, His miracles that God performed through him are second recorded only to Jesus. Uh, If you know who I'm talking about, then you'll notice that his name is Elijah. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about finding purpose in today. Elijah was used from some pretty amazing things. Some of them really big, outstanding things, and some of them some little things. And we're actually going to be focusing a little bit more on the little moments in between on purpose today. We're going to approach his life differently. And primarily, uh, we are going to be in 1 Kings 17 through 19. So if you turn there now, we're going to get there in a minute. We're going to be looking at some other places. But for the most part, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. Now, you may remember earlier in the year, earlier in the year, uh, the first couple of months, I actually spent a lot of time quoting this. I used to say, both the things that he, speaking of God, does... And the things that he does not do, he does on purpose. And he does them uh, on, in, in a certain sequence on purpose. There you go. I heard him say you were reading it out loud. <laughs> uh, God does things on purpose. He does them in a certain sequence on purpose. And I want to get back a little bit towards that today because in all reality, no matter where you are today, you have been put there on purpose. With a God who knows everything, you can't not be somewhere without being on purpose. God has a plan. And I want to... I want to show you that today, that no matter where you are, whether it feels circumstantial, by accident, or by grand design, God has put you there on purpose, and he wants you to serve him there, wherever there is. So when you look at life of miracles of Elijah, it would seem desirable looking at it from the outside. So Elijah was used to be able to tell others about the future. He was able to make baking supplies become never-ending, uh, so that was kind of fun. Uh, he, uh, he was able to, use, to be used to be raising people from the dead, uh, to tell the weather what to do and what not to do. Uh, he was able to see angels and show other people that the angels were standing around them. Those are all amazing feats, and they are all only possible if you have direct contact with God intervening in your life. But it's easy when you look at all these really amazing miracles uh, that were on his life, and we sometimes base his life off of these, it's easy to forget the impossible situation that he was in all those years. It made him have a complete reliance on God and an absolute necessity to have a reliance on God. So what do you do? What do you do when your nation turns it back, your, its back on God? 
What do you do when your neighbors start worshiping the idols of sensuality and stuff? When the priesthood is corrupt to its core and the nation is being led by a selfish, bratty king who, in an effort to please his foreign idol-worshiping wife, is systematically dismantling the worship of the true God. And he's allowing the cold-blooded murder of anybody who won't get with the new government program. What do you do? Well, we don't know much about Elijah, but we do know that the king's wife, at this point in the story where we're about to jump into, had brought in 850 prophets from her nation to replace the true worshiping priests of God. And we find that reference actually later on in 1 Kings 18.19 that she brought in 850 of them. But I want you to first see what Ahab is doing before we bring Elijah onto the scene. So we're going to hop into 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to start in 29 and read through 33. 1 Kings 16.29 In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, the son of Amri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all those who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took a wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethambal, the king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal and he worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So if other kings were bad, what the Bible is saying, if other kings were bad at this point, Ahab was worse. So Ahab is like, it's just continuing to get worse. Now, what's interesting is if you historically look at Israel, Ahab was actually a really good military leader. He was great for the nation in the military ways. He actually had started several different coalitions with other neighboring nations and got rid of Israel's enemies outside of its borders. He pushed them back. He also very good politically. He actually financially helped the nation out tremendously. During his reign, the nation actually prospered financially. The nation prospered militarily-wise, but the Bible records him as being worse than all the other kings, even though earthly standards would say something else. You see, he even had a house of ivory that we can find later on in 1 Kings twenty-two thirty-nine. That's showing you how much wealth had come underneath his reign, even though this was a long time after King Solomon's life. You see, you can be a great leader, You can be a master military strategist. You can be a great politician. You can strike deals left and right. But if you are corrupt spiritually, if you are corrupt spiritually, then you will always come up short to God's standards. In all reality, if you don't believe in God, you would feel that under Ahab's reign, things were going well. So when I accepted the Lord, I was about 20 years old, and with my current worldview at the time, I was raised as an atheist. I had raised through the public school system, uh, if you're familiar with any of the teachings therein. Um, and I was raised to live for myself, and I thought at the time that I got saved that the world was getting better. I thought we were loosening the unneeded religious shackles of the old you know, yesteryear, and I thought, you know what, the world is headed in a really great spot. I mean, we are doing better. I got saved, and my eyes were opened, and unfortunately, once you meet Jesus and you figure out the truth, and you actually start seeing the world as it actually is instead of just believing a lie, 
uh, you realize that it is far, far from getting better. It's actually on the downhill, and it's going down pretty quickly. It's like that hot metal slide that you used to go on the playground. It's going down fast. Elijah's situation looked impossible. We don't know much about him. We do know that he had a constant ability to talk to the king, so we assume the scholars assume that he actually had some relation to royalty. We assume somehow he was related to the royal family. That's why he had audience. Remember Moses was able to talk to Pharaoh. We assume that the reason why Moses was able to talk to Pharaoh, even though he got him so mad, is because he was related to him, because he had constant audience, because of that relation. We kind of assume the same thing. Now in 1 Kings 17.1, you can look in your Bible or you can look on the screen. I uh, decided to put this one up. It says that Elijah the Tishabite, the Tishabi of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the first recorded words of Elijah, just saying it right to the king. This is, uh, this is a straight-up prophecy, and this is a very blunt thing to say. The pronouncement of rain no longer falling is actually a direct result of the covenant or conditional promise the nation had agreed to. Remember before this year, we've talked about covenants. We've talked about how those are conditional agreements. It's a, um, if you do this, I will do this kind of agreement that God has with the people. And part of that is there. So if you keep your thumb here, keep your thumb here and turn to Leviticus 26. Keep your thumb and then turn over to Leviticus 26. I want to read part of this conditional promise just so you can kind of see what was happening. 26, 1 through 4. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. We've already read that Ahab has done this. You shall not set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. No, it's been done. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reserve, revere, and reverence my sanctuary, for I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall eat its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Okay, so you already see that what is happening is part of the covenantal promise. God says, follow me and I will bless you. Good things will happen. And guess what? Is He's completely broken every single one of these things. They have set up the altars of Baal. They are starting to bow down to Baal. They are no longer following God. They're no longer keeping the Sabbath. And God says, okay, you're not turning back. I gave you some time to realize the error of your way. Now it's time for me to be a faithful God with my promises, and I am going to start judging you. He uses Elijah as the mouthpiece. God thinks that they have broken their covenant, and in all reality, he's right. They have. Now, from the book of James, not actually in Kings, but James actually references this in chapter 5, verse 17. We'll find out that in James 5, 17, that this actually lasts three and a half years, and that's important later on. This drought lasts three and a half years. The major events in Elijah's life are going to be waited now for him to have bookended. So this rain has started, this condemnation has started, and then all of a sudden God kind of pulls Elijah away from the scene and gives him something else to do for the next three and a half years. And this is where it gets interesting because he starts taking care of him in a very unusual way. Chapter 17, 1 Kings 17, uh, 3 through 6 says this, Get away from here and turn eastward. Hide by the brook Cherith, which flows to the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and he stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So God uses ravens to feed him. 
Uh, now, if you know your Old Testament law, some people get confused and they're like, well, isn't he now unclean because he's eating ravens? No, he's not actually eating the ravens. It does say that in the Old Testament law that he's not allowed to eat them. He's not eating them. He's, they're just feeding him. They're bringing him. What's neat about ravens is that I was once watching a documentary about how God has created some really amazing animals. The raven has a long-term memory and is actually incredibly smart. If you watch documentaries on the raven, they actually say that their intelligence is on par with apes. Like, like ridiculously smart. Uh, and I, and the, the one documentary that I was watching, there was this little girl who had actually uh, found a hurt raven, uh, and she actually nursed it back to health and eventually was able to, to let it go back to the wild for years. I'm talking years afterwards. The raven continued to give her gifts, random golden little glittery things, shiny stuff as a way to say thank you. For years, it continued to come back every couple of months and drop a gift on her. And it would just give her presence, and it's like it was saying thank you, uh, which is really neat to see that the way God has made these different animals that you don't think about. Um, now, not long after, the water dries up. So if you know the story, the water dries up, and God sends Elijah to live with a widow. And during this time with this widow, not just one, but two major miracles are going to happen during this time with this widow. The first happens the day he meets her. He gets to her house and he sees her gathering sticks. So check out the passage with me in 1 Kings 17, 10 through 16. So just a couple of verses down. We're going to start in verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And he went and he came to a gate of the city. Indeed, a widow was there. This is what God told him to do. So he found her. And he called to her and he said, Bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterwards make some for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So she went away and she did according to what the word of Elijah and she and her household had ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which was spoke by Elijah. So what happens as she is literally making her final meal, assuming that she is about to starve to death. Elijah comes up, sees her making this stuff and says, hey, can you give me this? So she goes to get him the water. He's like, can you also make me some food? And she's like, I don't really have enough for you. I've got enough for my son and me to have one final meal. And then we're going to starve to death. And he says, okay, that's cool. Um, can you also bake me a cake as well? That's actually kind of the way that the, uh, the text goes. The faith that this woman must have had, or maybe just a complete lack of options, because at this point it's like, okay, I I guess I was just going to make our last meal, but I can share that with you. It's just a devastating thing, because you realize that the nation has turned its back on God, and this woman who seems to have some faith in God is being affected. What's happening nationally affects the little people as well. It affects the people that still trust and follow God. But you know what? Even though those things that the nation is doing and the nation is turning away and those affect us, God does not forget us. He does not forget you because things are going against you because of the nation turning away. He doesn't forget each and every single one of us. He remembers those of us who feel little and forgotten 
You see, Elijah was waiting for the next big event to come in his life. He knew eventually he would have to go and confront Ahab with his sin with his sin, and he would have to eventually talk about the rain, and he would have to do other things. He knew that day was coming. But right now, God had another use for him. You see, we each look for big events. We look for uh, marriage. We look for uh, holidays. Some people, uh, actually, Alicia has a friend who goes down to Disney every single year, um, and they look forward to that every single year. And when you're living 365 days for seven days, you tend to miss the rest of the year. And if you live for the big days, only looking for the big events, you're going to miss what God is doing. But what about those in-between times? Because this is three and a half years long. So what is Elijah using his time to do? You see, big event days are just that. They're single days that stand out. I want to suggest that resting in the valley between the mountaintops experiences is actually what life is mostly about. Life is not at the mountaintop. We only spend a little afternoon there. The rest of it is down in the valley, ready to go back up the next mountain. It is what it consists of. Yes, Elijah had big events to look forward to, but God wanted to use him now in someone else's life. And I want to say that God wants to use you now in somebody else's life in the middle of the big mountaintops. You see, all of a sudden, guess what happens? The widow's son dies, unexpectedly, just out of the blue. When things are starting to look up, just when it feels like God's hand is on their life, disaster comes. So pick up with the verses 17 through 24. 17 through 24. So now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. Just died. So she said to Elijah, what have you done? What have I done to you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin in remembrance and kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and he carried him up to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room to the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, and it is true. So you would think initially from this and reading this account that the woman would have had enough faith to not be so concerned, that she wouldn't have started questioning, but she still did. She woke up every single morning literally to a miracle. The bread just kept coming because the supplies were there. The supplies, she literally had one day's supply, and the next morning it was there again. She woke up to a literal miracle. Why didn't she have enough faith? You see... When things start looking up and we start the uphill battle, it's very easy for us to get beaten down again. Just when things start turning around, just when you feel like you're finally above water and you're, you're treading, all of a sudden you, far, you, you feel like something bad happens and you start drowning and you start feeling like you're helpless. God stepped in because he wanted her to know that he was there for her. You see, she felt like she just couldn't get ahead and that she was drowning and remember what I said early in the sermon? No matter where you are today, you've been put there on a purpose. God placed Elijah where he was because he was not just watching after Elijah. He was watching after the widow. He was watching after the son. He was also watching after Elijah. You see, our way of thinking tends to lean towards imagining those who are being more visually used by God 
as more important than ourselves. I'm going to say that again. Our way of thinking tends to lean towards imagining those who are being more visually used by God as being more important than ourselves. We see the people that are doing the big things as being more important. Guess what? In God's eyes, they're not. That's not the way God views us. The people that are doing the big things are just as important as the people that are doing the little things. God loves and cares for you just as much, regardless of what you are doing or being used for. You see, God saw the widow when he took care of her needs through the provision of food. God saw the need of the boy by bringing a messenger of life to him. God saw the need of the messenger by giving him company and not leaving him alone. Soon you will find out if you continue reading that even though Elijah was a God of man and God worked many miracles through him, he was a man who at many times felt very lonely. At the beginning of chapter 18, we're going to find that he's a godly man that always feels alone. You see, there's another guy by Obadiah is his name. He hid 100 prophets in caves dispersed throughout the land. That's 18, 3 through 4. If you read chapter 18, verses 3 through 4, uh, about what happened with Obadiah. Even though Elijah knows about this, he still tells Ahab and the people on the mount when he finally gets to facing them, he says, even I, only I am left, the prophet of the Lord. You see, he felt like he was the only one left because he was the only one that was still standing his ground. He felt like he was the only one left because he was the only one not hiding for his life. It's a terrible place to be, to feel like you're all alone, powerless, without hope. You see, there's a quote that reminds me of this tactic of our enemy. It goes like this. It says, well, if I were you, know who, I want you to feel cut off from everyone else. Because if it's just you alone, you're not much of a threat. 1 Peter 5.8, what does it say? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What are the tactics of a lion? Tactics of our lion are to go after the sick and lame, those who are stragglers from the crowd. If you are not a straggler from the crowd, what he does, if he can't find one, is he tries to cordon you off and pull you out from the crowd so he can deal with you on a one-on-one basis. That is what the devil does, is he tries to isolate you to make you feel like you are alone and powerless. That is his tactic. He wants you to feel alone. When God sent Elijah to the widow's house, he wasn't just watching over her and her family. He was also watching after Elijah. Sometimes it's the small things that mean the most to each one of us. In fact, it's those small things that give Elijah his own second wind. After the big victory on the mountaintop, you'll find that he again prays and rain will come back. We know the story. Eventually the rain comes back. That's what God uses. But at the threat of Ahab's wife Jezebel, on his own life, he starts running for his life. And he ends up in the middle of the woods, completely exhausted. And he says, God, I just want to die. I just want, I want it to be done. I'm, just, I'm done with this entire thing. Even though he just won this big victory. And what does God do? God sends an angel to watch after him. And what does he do? He gives him food. It's just that simple little thing. He literally gives him a meal. says, get up, eat. You need your strength. And he goes back and he sleeps. God doesn't all of a sudden just snap his fingers and say, okay, you've got all of this. No. God knew that Elijah needed rest. God knew that Elijah needed comfort, and he could only get it from those small little things, things that you and I can do to someone else that needs rest and comfort. Let's check out 1 Kings 9, 4, uh, 19, 4 through 8. 1 Kings 19, 4 through 8. This is talking about Elijah, but he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and he sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. 
Now, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. Then he lay and slept under a broom tree, and suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time, and he touched him. He said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. God watched after him. He gave him the little things. It wasn't some big miraculous thing. It was just these little comfort things. It's easy to get lost in the great and amazing works. Peter was walking on water. Jesus healed the blind. Paul healed the lame and David slayed thousands of enemy soldiers. Great and sometimes heroic feats, but it's the little things that each of these people needed to keep going when times got hard. When Peter messed up, what did Jesus do? He made him a meal by the ocean side and told him to eat. And he brought him back in with a conversation. When Paul was locked up, he spent all night singing in prison with his friends. When David needed to feed his army, others took pity on him and gave him food. We're not all called to greatness. We're not all going to be in front of large crowds. But we are each called to serve where we can be and where we are at. Romans gives us some of the most practical advice we can about reaching others around us. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21. We're going to finish here. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. I know this is a little bit of a longer passage, but this is one of those ones that if you get a chance later this week, I'd highly recommend you reread when you're not here. Go and reread it and mull it over and see what God is asking you to do because this is something each and every single one of us can do to change the life of somebody else just by showing them love. So we're going to start in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to those, to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one for evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are things that we can do to serve one another today that are simple things. You don't have to be able to be used by God to do some miraculous miracle. These are simple, honest-to-goodness things that you could do for your family, for your neighbors, and those who need to see the love of Jesus in their lives. These are practical things. These are things that we can do when our nation is turning away from God and our neighbor has stopped believing. We can become servants who actively seek to show love. It may be inviting them over for a meal and it may be praying for them. It may be turning the other cheek and choosing humility when they insult you or your God. But whatever it is, remember this. No matter where you are today, 
you've been put there on purpose. And a part of that purpose is the people that you're going to see this week. The question is, what are you going to do to show the love of Christ to them this week? One way that we can show love to others is by telling them the truth, the word of God. Over the next several months, I'm going to begin working with you on what is called the Romans Road. It is a way that is simple and easy to lead somebody else to Christ. You may already know this. You may actually have another way that you like to show and tell other people about the gospel. But I like the Romans Road because in all reality, it's very simple. And most of it is one-liners. Uh, so it's, it's easy to remember. It's all in one book and condensed. And over the next couple of months, we're going to take a couple of weeks on each verse. And we're going to practice them as a church because I want you to have the tools to be able to go out and show love, to be able to tell the truth to a lost and dying world who has turned away from God in a very simple and easy way, something that you can go and say, you know what, this is how you can know God and this is how you can know for sure that he has saved you, that your life can be actually different. God wants to use you. He placed you where you are today on purpose. What are you gonna do to show love to those around you this week? Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to look to your word, to know the truth that you have set before us. I thank you for the example of people in past times who have been used for great things because they were small things. Father, I thank you for the examples that we can know in scripture that we are commanded to do things that I think every single one of us can do to show hospitality to others, to show them love, you haven't called each and every single one of us to great things, but you have called us to love. Father, help us each to find the way that you have chosen to show love through us this week. Lord, help us to find somebody that needs you this week, whether it's just to pray with them, maybe to give them a meal, maybe it's just to be there beside them. Father, you know what it is. So Lord, help us to trust you and walk beside you in it. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen.